Hello, everybody. Welcome to SALT Talks. Uh, this is unfortunately in lieu of the SALT Conference. Uh, we're trying to have a few times a week uh, some very interesting discussions about what's going on in the world and some real uh, meaty topical investment topics as well. Uh, I am in lieu of John Darcy today. You can see there's no duck here. And the rumor is, is that John Darcy's mother-in-law threw that duck in the garbage. So uh, you won't be seeing that duck anytime soon. Uh, but this is Anthony Scaramucci, and today's SALT talk is about cannabis. And so the title is Essential Cannabis. It is a panel brought to you by one of our SALT partners, ETFMG. Uh, the stock symbol is MJ. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've been a big supporter of the cannabis space over the years. Uh, just given our libertarian uh, philosophy, we sort of feel like... Uh, particularly for medical uses and obviously recreational but medical uses, uh, this is going to be an explosively growing industry. I'm going to turn it over to these guys in a second, but ETFMG is the leading thematic ETF uh, issuer. It's known for innovative investment products like MJ, the world's largest cannabis ETF, and most recently GERM or GERM, the first way to invest directly in vaccines, treatments, and testing in biotech. So hosting today's panel is ETFMGMJ's research and banking expert, Jason Wilson. Uh, Jason is a Toronto native. He's a Canadian Forces veteran with over 15 years of asset management experience in finance, structured products, and he has a great track record in bringing hard to access asset classes to the market. He's been working in connection with legal, the legal cannabis industry for the past decade and is a great host for what I think will be a phenomenal panel. So with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Jason. Uh, good luck to you guys and uh, we're fascinated by the upcoming discussion. Great, Anthony, thanks very much for the intro. No, thanks for the opportunity to be part of Salt Talks. Um, and to our audience today, you know, welcome to Cannabis Isle. It's a bipartisan discussion we're going to have on cannabis, which is right now the world's largest emerging industry. So we have three great guest speakers joining us today to discuss the growth of the cannabis industry and the effect it will have on U.S. jobs, tax revenue, and the upcoming election. Um, top of the lineup is David Culver. He currently serves as Vice President of Government and Stakeholder Relations at Canopy Growth. David has about 20 years of federal experience and currently manages all database state and federal engagement at Canada Growth US. So very busy job on, on his part. Uh, Patrick Martin of Cozen O'Connor will also be joining us today. Uh, Patrick's a principal at Cozen O'Connor, where he directs the firm's uh, government relations and public advocacy efforts in the Midwest. And he's also a key member of the firm's government relations team in Washington, D.C. Uh, last but definitely not least, we have uh, Eric Huey. But Eric is president of Platinum Advisors is over 25 years of experience as a senior government relations and public affairs executive. He's repeatedly been on the, on the Hills list, top lobbyists in Washington, D.C. So thank you, speakers, for joining us. And it's, uh, I think it's going to be a great little conversation we have today. So I guess to kick things off and get right into it, um, let's talk about cannabis and COVID. And when we, we look at what happened back in March, obviously numerous states were started issuing stay-at-home orders and appeared to cannabis-related businesses, along with most other consumer-faced businesses, were being forced to shut down. And we kind of had a, a 180 
know, immediately didn't take long where most of the states have legalized cannabis decided that they were essential businesses and allowed them to be open. You know, Patrick, can, can you tell us a little bit? I know you work with a bunch of multi-state operators. Can you tell us what was happening behind the scenes that saw that reversal? Sure, absolutely. And Jason, thank you so much for, for having us. Um, COVID really brought uh, the cannabis industry front and center uh, in terms of how states were both responding to the crisis and also how states were making determinations about what businesses were essential and what businesses were not essential. And what we saw is overwhelmingly across the country in almost 30 states, the cannabis programs, both medical and adult use, were deemed essential. Uh, I'm speaking to you all from, from Illinois. Uh, we have a uh, young uh, but very successful adult use program here that was uh, passed in historic fashion by our state legislature uh, last year. And what we saw was uh, the governor and his team and folks in our state legislature uh, saying that we need this program uh, to go forward and that it needs to be treated uh, just like grocery stores and liquor stores and other forms of retail that in the midst of an economic crisis are gonna provide uh, you know, real benefit to these communities. And just in the month of May, the Illinois Department of uh, Financial and Professional Regulation uh, has told us that there was $77 million in sales here in Illinois uh, combined for our medical program and our adult use uh, program as well. Uh, so extraordinary economic benefit to the state. And so you saw a lot of governors uh, say very clearly to their states that this needs to be deemed essential. And I think it really showed progress for the industry and for how cannabis is, is being viewed across the country as an essential part of our economy. Awesome. So, you know, it, it always seems to me that quite the disconnect between, you know, you got, you got the, the majority of the U.S. population lives in states that's not only legalized cannabis, but it says essential. And, and yet, you know, we have a handful of states that, that aren't quite there yet. It's not even talked about the federal level yet. So what's going to happen later this year? I mean, do you see a number of states kind of moving forward to, to legalize, you know, maybe early, later this year, maybe early 2021? Uh, you know, maybe Patrick, Eric, you can both chip in on this. Yeah, I think you're going to see states uh, that don't have uh, an adult use program, but maybe have a medical program, take a look uh, and kind of assess the political environment. And I think likewise, states that have neither uh, are going to take a look at, at doing something maybe in the medical space for the first time. You know, the other thing in response to COVID um, that I didn't mention earlier is just the disconnect between the action that the states took in deeming uh, cannabis an essential industry and the federal government uh, providing no relief um, in any of the, the packages that were signed into law, particularly the CARES Act, you know, cannabis businesses aren't able to benefit from any of those small business programs because of the federal illegality. And so once again, as we've seen uh, through many issues over the course of, of our history, states are leading uh, and the federal government uh, just isn't quite there yet, but we think the momentum is certainly in, in our direction. And you found, uh, Jason, first of all, thank you. Thanks to Salt Talks and ETFMG and to Anthony Scaramucci and, and to you, Jason, for, for having us. Uh, there's this weird dichotomy where these are essential facilities, uh, but yet they're not legal in so many states. You've got 34 states that, that are where, where it's legal. You have uh, for medical, you have 11 states plus the Washington, D.C., where it's legal for recreational. 
uh, it's going to be on the ballot uh, in states like New Jersey and South Dakota. It could very well be on the ballot in four or five more all over the, uh, the West and, 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 uh, and upper Midwest. And um, governors are now desperate for revenues. And due to the COVID crisis, um, you're looking at the state of California has a $64 billion deficit. New York's going to have a $13 billion deficit. It's going to need $61 billion in federal funds to, to make up for it. So you can see the pressure that's mounting on, say, Governor Cuomo in New York, where legislators have penned a letter and said, we've got to do this. We've got to legalize. Uh, the governor of New Mexico, um, Luhan Grisham, said uh, her biggest regret since she became governor uh, is that she did not legalize prior to COVID because they would have uh, brought in 100 million in revenue and that's critically needed at, at this time. Uh, so I think by the end of the year, Pennsylvania, of course, is, 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 is looking at this. I think it could very well move uh, in, in, in Pennsylvania um, it, because there's both Republican and Democratic uh, agreement that, that, that this has to move. Uh, for, for moral reasons due to social justice. It has to move for, for budgetary and fiscal reasons. And it has to move because that's where the will of the people are. 66% of Americans believe that, that, that cannabis should be legal. And that's uh, a majority of public Republicans from baby boomers on down to millennials. So, and, and, and the Democrat numbers are, are way off the charts. So the public is there. There, this is inevitable. It just sometimes takes a while for, for some state leaders and, uh, and for federal leaders to, to, to get there. But something has to be done, and uh, it's, we're going we're gonna to see movement on this. The, the momentum is just, is just too great. So, so David, you know, switching over to you for a second, because you actually are you know, working at Canopy Growth down in the U.S., and obviously it's kind of bellwether for the industry. It's looking at the numbers in, in the U.S., 250,000 jobs created in the legal cannabis industry. We've seen you know, 15% and year-over-year growth in jobs. Uh, you know, you, you, we're just talking about state revenues, obviously look at Colorado alone has generated over a billion dollars in tax revenue since legalizing in 2014. You know, what is, and Eric was touching on it, but David, I'd love to hear your, your view too. What does this, you know, what's, what are municipalities gonna do, states? Is this gonna be the big driver really for legalizing? is the fill all the holes that the pandemic has created? Yeah, I think it's going to, and I think Patrick and Eric alluded quite nicely to this. And let me also, um, just speaking for the first time, express my thanks to you, Jason, uh, and also to Salt Talks. I, I very much wish we were sitting in Las Vegas doing this like the rest of us, but hopefully we'll be able to do that soon. Um, so I think Patrick and Eric hit on a lot of the main points associated with your question, but what I want to um, just mention that I think is also of importance um, is the fact that we are going to start a recovery um, on the with on you know, nationwide um, once we get this virus under control, and we are going to get it under control, and the economy is going to recover. Uh, I think cannabis can be an enormous shot in the arm uh, as we begin that process. The last estimates that I saw. Um, really put the job numbers at about 1.5 billion if we were to leave, sorry, 1.5 million if we were to legalize in the U.S. Um, and I can't help think about the end of prohibition having spent so much time in the alcohol industry because the parallels that we are in now uh, related to unemployment and also related to the need to jumpstart the economy at some point soon uh, are staggering. So um, opening the market is going to be really critical, I feel. I know that um, we are investing in that regard as a company, but it's also worth mentioning that 
um, we're going to have great products here in the United States. Uh, and as, if we legalize, it's going to really help other countries around the world to do so as well. Um, we're going to be a leading force there, and we can really add on to um, the export potential that we've got through cannabis, I believe strongly in that. And then the third prong of it is innovation. Um, I know lots and lots of companies have exciting products coming to market. Uh, we have our Martha Stewart line that we've talked about quite a bit that's coming out in the fall. Uh, and we also have our uh, drinks um, that will be coming into the U.S. Uh, through the acreage channels later this year. And these are excited and exciting, innovative products. Um, you know, they have no impact on the liver. They have no calories um, and they have no hangover. And I think a lot of the country is interested in, in trying cannabis, but they're not going to go the smoking route. And so innovative products like beverages uh, can really drive uh, that economic recovery in the space. So I'm excited about the, the future. Um, and I think that we can be a really important part of the recovery when the nation starts that process. You know, I, and I completely agree. It's, it's, it's gonna be fantastic to see how this whole plays out. Obviously, it explains a lot of the you know investment in the space that's happening right now. Um, you know, we, we've heard a lot about COVID and how it's affected the cannabis industry and obviously the whole economy. And, and uh, you know, we'll see how all that plays out. Hopefully, we get back to normal sooner, much sooner rather than later. But the other big issue that we've been grappling with, obviously, it's been you know not addressed properly for generations and continues to to particularly during this pandemic really rears up that's the amount of racism that's out there, the social injustice, the police brutality. Um, you know, and a lot of this ties in with the cannabis industry. Now, Patrick, you represent and work with a, a number of the MSOs in the U.S. You know, what, what's, your, what's your take on this? How are the multi-state operators, cannabis businesses in the U.S., how are they addressing the social justice issues going forward? Jason, it's a terrific question, and it's of the utmost importance to, to all of us here. Uh, you know, I think what's happened in the last uh, several weeks has caused all of us to really take a step back. And, uh, you know, there's been conversations around social and restorative uh, and reparative justice in the cannabis industry that have been taking place for a long time. But if, if you really think about everything that's happened in the last few weeks, um, you know, Jason, Eric, David, and, and myself, you know, none of us know what it's like to be arrested uh, or pulled over or targeted because of the color of our skin um, and have in a can of, uh, be arrested for, for possession of cannabis, um, you know, as a, as a way to be sort of unfairly targeted. None of us know what that's like. And the protests that have taken place over the last several weeks, I think have caused all of us to really do a lot more listening um, about what the world is like for, for so many out there. And cannabis has a unique role to play in not only how do we right the wrongs of the past, when we're talking about things like expunging records, we're talking about things like making sure that, uh, you know, cannabis is decriminalized, but what are we doing in terms of looking forward? How are we giving people that have been unfairly targeted uh, and unfairly arrested and prosecuted, how are we giving them opportunities in this new cannabis economy? I think that's what the companies that I work with spend a lot of time talking about. And you've seen states take a leadership role in this as well. And I think you'll see large states that look to do adult use programs uh, through their state legislatures. 
look at the model that was set up here in Illinois, which was really the first state to address social equity uh, and social justice in their cannabis law in a, in a really direct way. And it's things like giving people opportunity who are uh, from areas of high unemployment and high poverty uh, and areas that have high arrests and conviction rates on cannabis. Uh, in Illinois, we set up a social equity fund, um, which is financed by current license holders and will be financed by future license holders. Um, and it's through things like loan repayments and license transfers. Um, and then it's companies looking at who they employ and who sits on their boards. And you're already uh, seeing cannabis companies take a, a second look at who are we employing uh, and, and who do we have in the C-suite and in the boardroom? And does that reflect uh, the diversity of this country? So I think it's a conversation that is gonna continue to, to take place. I know that David and Eric and I talk about it uh, all the time, um, but this moment in time, what we've all been experiencing and living through, I think has really put a fine, fine point on how important this issue is. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. It is an incredibly important issue. And it, it, it's great to hear of, of the measures that are being taken to address this. Uh, you know, David, if I can, I'd like to put you in a hot seat a little bit. Um, you know, this is not just a U.S. issue. I, I know, obviously, that the, both the protests have happened in the United States, but, you know, here in Canada, in Toronto, we've seen it in London, across the globe. And, and you know, Canopy is, is unique. They are a global entity, operates in over a dozen different countries globally. I mean, how are you guys looking at this from a global perspective? Yeah, it's, it's a really important uh, issue for our company, Jason, and I appreciate the question. And I also appreciate, uh, you know, all the remarks that, that Patrick made because uh, we do as a, a small GR team, think about this, uh, you know, all day, every day. And I'll get to that a bit more in a minute, but specifically to Canopy, um, we've put out a number of uh, statements related to our position and standing with those demanding justice. So um, we, we are there, uh, but we have decided that we need to take more time uh, as a company uh, to review what we're gonna do because this isn't about press releases, it's about acting. Um, and Patrick mentioned uh, you know, the boardroom and the C-suite. Uh, so we're taking a close look internally um, with our leaders at, at our own diversity inclusion program, which we began working on um, last year when Hillary Black stepped into the role as uh, head of our corporate social responsibility. This is something that we have a number of ongoing conversations over the next uh, few weeks, and um, we're excited to be showing the results and that path forward at some point in the near future. So hopefully next time when we chat, uh, we'll, able, we'll be able to provide some more specifics about what we're doing internally. But externally, um, it's going to be really important for us as a company and others in the cannabis space to continue to partner with social justice organizations and programs across the U.S. Um, Canopy's biggest, well, around the world, Jason, Canopy's biggest, biggest thrust has been um, with National Expungement Week, which we partnered last year there, um, and we will do so again this year. Uh, we're excited about that partnership, and also in Illinois, um, and uh, also in New York, we have a partnership there that we've just established with the Last Prisoner Project uh, to help um, cannabis prisoners uh, for nonviolent offenses get out of jail. So um, this is just kind of tip of the iceberg of what we're doing. And again, I think when we chat in a month or two, we'll have a lot more discussion about what Canopy's up to and we're excited about the project uh, and to be a part of the movement. Uh, that's, that's great news and incredibly, incredibly interesting. 
And, and you know, I guess it really begs the question, this is an open question, all of you maybe want to hear from, from Eric a little bit, but you know, is this something that really, truly should be addressed through federal legalization? I mean, instead of just, you know, going the decriminalization route, is, is, is this what we really need legislation for to address? Absolutely. Uh, we have to come to grips with the fact that our cannabis laws, our drug laws generally, particularly as it relates to cannabis, have a long history of, of, of racial bias and racial, racial prejudice. Going back to Harry Anslinger the, in the 1930s, the first Federal Bureau of Narcotics chief, uh, who was an unrepentant, blatant racist. And the very use of the term marijuana with an H was they used that term rather than cannabis and, or other terminology so that they could make it sound more Mexican. So the entire history of the laws set up to enforce marijuana were designed in large part to put black, man, black and brown men into cages. When you look at how they've been enforced over the past um, you know, through Nixon and, and, and Schedule One, all the way through, you know, through, through recent attorneys general, black men are arrested at four times the rate than white men for, for, for cannabis, despite the fact that they're only 12% of the population African-Americans. So that is not an accident. That is systemic and it's systematic. And if we're going to look at um, this whole notion that probable cause is the color of your skin, well, what is the pretense for, for, for an arrest? In, the statistics are, are, are staggering on this. We spend three and a half billion dollars a year on, on cannabis enforcement alone. Uh, we do 600,000 arrests a year for cannabis. In 2016, we did, we did 600,000. Uh, that is more than all violent crime arrests in America combined for all violent crime. Our priorities are out of whack and you have to, worry, you have to wonder, is this really about cannabis? Right? It, 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 or, or is this about, about something deeper? Somebody's arrested every 37 seconds, and 87%, um, 88% of arrests are, are, are for possession. So we have to grapple with that. We have to grapple with it as part of a larger package. Um, we absolutely, you know, decriminalization and legalization, uh, the passage of the, the ability to access banking is, is a component, of it. but social justice be, uh, component is going to be critical for so many. African-American men, their interaction with police happens because of a suspicion of cannabis use. You can smell it in the air. If they're nearby, they're going to they're, they're gonna, uh, arrest or at least question the, the nearest African-American male. So until we grapple with, with that, the, the mayor of Kansas City is just saying this week, we have got to decriminalize this for possession or else we're never really going to get at this. This is step one and it has to be part of a larger federal package. You know, it's absolutely mind-boggling, the numbers, the waste of time, resources, the effect on people's lives. If you point it out for generations, I mean, this is a hundred-year-old plus problem, let alone all the other injustices and what have you. And, and you know, it, that said, we are, you know, if you look globally at what's happening with respect to cannabis, uh, there's been a lot of progress. I mean, we have over 20 countries around the world that have legalized uh, marijuana for medical use. Uh, Mexico's soon slated to join Canada on legalizing for adult use. Uh, you know, we have the WHO that's recommended that cannabis be rescheduled. I believe the UN's voting on that shortly, and they usually always follow the WHO's recommendations. So we're interested to see what happens with that because that will affect our international treaties, which is a huge part of the problem. In the US, even we've had at the federal level some, uh, you know, progress. Obviously, we had GW Pharma with epidiolex being approved. It. 
you know, have a plant-based um, cannabinoid pharmaceutical used to treat childhood epilepsy. That was a big step in 2018. Going forward, you know, the, after that, the DA rescheduled CBD all the way down to Schedule 5. Um, we're seeing progress. David, you guys have obviously, being a global company headquartered in Canada, breaking into the, the U.S. market, you obviously have a lot riding on what happens here at a federal level. What, what, what's your take? Where, where do, what's, what's happening? What's the next steps at, at the federal level? What's your perspective there? Yeah, good, good question and a very good summary uh, globally, Jason. Um, I think, first of all, the WHO recommendations to the UN are really are critically important. They've punted on the vote there a couple times now, but they, it is rescheduled for this coming December. So uh, we're engaged um, with our U.S. government here. I know other companies are as well. The U.S. position is going to be really important on this. It's going to help drive a lot of the, the other nation states. So that's something we're watching closely and um, trying to make sure that our position as a country uh, is a good one. <clears throat> um, you know, on Capitol Hill, I think that the efforts there similarly will also drive uh, efforts around the world. And there's just a couple, I think, important notes. So Eric and Patrick alluded earlier to COVID relief. Um, and the, the primary point to make there is that we as an industry have not received any relief from COVID thus far. Uh, so if you think about the three prongs that I pressed for early on, uh, the industry pressed for, it was the Safe Banking Act, it was access to small business loans, and it was standard business deductibility. Uh, so to date, we don't have any of that. Now, um, big thanks and hat tip to Speaker Pelosi and the Democrats for putting the Safe Banking Act uh, into the HEROES package, which is now sitting in the Senate. We don't know the fate of it. Um, we very much encourage Chairman Crapo and uh, Leader McConnell to, to adopt the Safe um, Banking Act because this is, of course, about access to banks, but it's a public health issue now. We've got to stop dealing um, in cash, especially that the centuries are deemed essential, as we started with in this conversation. We've got to make sure that um, we're able to have access to the banks so we don't have to deal with cash day in and day out, because that's a problem. Um, the second thing I'll say is that the COVID crisis, oddly enough, because we were all deemed essential, um, it's really created a great deal of momentum. And coupled with what Eric just said previously about criminal justice reform, um, you know, we believe that cannabis legalization is going to be a part of that as well. So the momentum is strong at the moment. And I think the most talked about piece of legislation um, is the MORE Act, which Chairman Nadler from New York has introduced. And the most important piece of that legislation, um, aside for in parallel to descheduling, uh, is the fact that it weaves the social justice that we were talking about earlier through the entire bill. Um, it, it, it really, not, no portion of that bill exists without social justice. And you know, if, if I'm doing my day job correctly, both in Washington, DC and also in state capitals, I'm making sure that that component is weaved into to any package that we're addressing. So. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about moving the MORAC this year uh, and also preparing for what things will look like next year. Can you talk a little bit more about the, the, the tax piece and the regulatory components of, of the MORAC and how it's going to, you know, should come into play? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think 
There's a couple things that the industry's been thinking about since the MORE Act was introduced last year. And first is the tax piece, which they set a flat federal excise tax rate, which is fine because we're going to need to generate um, federal excise tax from the sale of this product, just like they do with beverage alcohol. But we need to make sure that we are doing it in a way that um, allows for the legal market or the illegal market rather to transition into the legal market without an unusual tax burden. So there's been a lot of ideas that have floated around out there, but one of them is to start lower on the federal excise tax and then ramp it up to something that's comparable to alcohol once yeah, you know you get to the point where the um, illicit market has had the opportunity to transition. And just quickly, what's happening at an industry level? Are we seeing collaboration? I mean, I know every company's focused on market share regionally, statewide, what have you. Um, but I, I would have to think there needs to be a movement for everyone to get together and, and work as a united front. Are we starting to see that happen in the cannabis industry? Yeah, we're getting a lot better. Um, I'm a big fan of the trade association world, obviously spending a lot of time at one. I think they're very effective. If you looked at the beginning of COVID, you had the most sophisticated of the trade associations coming out right away uh, with requests to Capitol Hill, um, to lawmakers, and also leaking them to the media uh, for what exactly their industry needed to stay afloat, both short-term and long-term. And they were very successful. So we don't have that one voice yet in the industry, but at a minimum, I think that we need to begin discussions to make sure that we're prepared for 2021. Um, because this is really, in my mind, this is no longer a three to five year discussion about legalizing cannabis. It's a one to three year. And we need to make sure we're prepared um, in a unified way to present a unified message to Capitol Hill and in state capitals. Because if we don't do so, uh, we're not going to be successful. I've been at this way too long. I've seen way too many industries coming at this from different directions and not being able to get done what they ultimately wanted to. Uh, so that's really a big challenge for us as a group is to unify. Uh, I would just build on that a little bit by saying what's going on in the, in, in the industry, despite the stories about COVID uh, driving a spike in, in, in demand, is there is a capital crisis. All of the exuberant money that came in early through the angel rounds and friends and family is out there. There cannot be an injection of institutional investment uh, in, in, in a meaningful way, or in a more meaningful way, without access to banking. So until that happens, you've got a $56 billion industry that is realizing one-tenth of, one of its U.S. addressable market. So what does 10x look like and how do we, how do we get there? Um, we, currently, you, you mentioned, Jason, uh, the industry employs 250,000 people already. That's four times as many people as the coal industry. So this is an industry that is poised to, to, to explode, but they can't because they can't get access to the capital markets in a real meaningful way. They can't hockey stick. And until we do, and this is not an industry that's looking for a handout. This is, you know, I, with Just Cause, the airline industry got $50 um, billion out of um, CARES Act, the restaurant industry. People are looking for industry-specific ch changes. We're looking for the removal of obstacles. There are four or five obstacles that David just enumerated. The, the minute those are removed, the minute all that capital comes in, and this industry explodes, not just in big cities, not just in the coast, but, but in, in states and communities throughout the U.S., rural, uh, small towns, and that's going to be the exciting moment. But until we get there, and absent a, a comprehensive a federal plan, we are going to be uh, stuck at the starting line. Yeah, I agree. agree. So, election coming up, obviously, in everyone's mind. Um, 
you know, the, obviously it, 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 it's, uh, it's going to be interesting. I mean, we really have, you know, two 70 year old baby boomer white guys that, that neither of which seem to be horribly uh, supportive of Canada. So I guess I'll, I'll put it that way. You know, Patrick, is the, whoever, is it going to matter who gets elected, right? Like what's your view on that? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. And, you know, we, often make the point that, you know, we, we work well with, uh, you know, and want to work well with both parties. And we think this issue is a winner uh, for whoever takes the mantle and, and wants to run with it, uh, a political winner and a, a true public policy winner with the public. But the way you framed the question, uh, I think is exactly right. You have two candidates for personal, political, uh, and I'm sure a whole host of other reasons um, that are not uh, just quite there on the issue. And, and I, I think you see that a lot with, uh, you know, politicians of a certain generation. Um, what I would say in terms of how the election results will impact the cannabis movement in the United States is that I think it will impact it to some degree on timing, depending on who wins the election. But regardless of who wins the election, it will not slow down the forward progress. And I'll, I'll provide an example. Um, on, on sort of what I'm talking about. Um, you know, the gay marriage movement saw in this country um, a lot of peaks and valleys and then a tremendous steam ahead in a really short period of time. And if President Trump is reelected, I could see something uh, akin to the election of 2004 when President Bush was reelected. Um, you had all these uh, state uh, ballot measures on defining marriages between a man and a woman. And after President Bush was reelected, I think there was real heartache within uh, the LGBTQ community about what the prospects were uh, for gay marriage going forward. But it turned out that in the course of time, you know, it was only in the next term of the next president that we ended up, uh, you know, getting the historic Supreme Court ruling. Uh, so it didn't end up taking, I think, nearly as long as some people would have thought the day after the 2004 election. If Vice President Biden's elected, I think there are the prospects for seeing a legalization at the federal level, uh, it's going to be much, much faster. Um, I think there's still going to be uh, an education and a phase-in period for sure. And I think there's going to be, uh, you know, there's going to need to be some patience at the, at the very beginning. But I think you'll see it happen, uh, you know, within a first term of a Biden presidency. And uh, just to take the gay marriage analogy even further, uh, you know, what I think all of us would love to see is whoever Vice President Biden picks as his running mate, uh, I think that they should get right out in front of this issue the same way that Vice President Biden did on gay marriage with President Obama. And everyone sort of remembers he uh, famously came out and said he was for it. And then uh, that forced the White House to have to respond, the president to have to respond. And they were already moving that way anyway. But I, I would hope that uh, whichever woman Vice President Biden picks uh, does the same thing. And this will be, you know, his running mate, just by definition of who he's considering, will be a woman who is more progressive on cannabis uh, than he is because every single woman he's considering supports legalization. And if it's a woman of color, they'll have dealt firsthand, uh, both in their personal and professional lives with issues of, of uh, racial injustice. And so I think we're hoping as an industry that uh, that person can be a real supportive voice within a Biden administration if he wins. The one area I would say that that example doesn't work, uh, and it's a really important example, is that uh, gay marriage was decided by a historic Supreme Court ruling. 
And all of us in the industry are not waiting for the US Supreme Court to decide uh, the fate of legalization of cannabis in America. We want lawmakers to act. We want uh, Congress and our president to work together uh, to create an equitable law uh, that sets up a fair system for how cannabis is regulated in the United States and that uh, addresses the social injustices that have taken place and provides opportunities for people within this industry. So it's going to be interesting. I, I would build on that as well. And Patrick put it well. He said, let's talk about the impact of the election on the legalization of cannabis movement. But I think if we, the reverse is also true. Look, let's look at the impact of the legalization of cannabis movement on the election and the impact that it could have. Because when you look at the key demographics, like veterans, like millennials, like boomers, who nobody remembers is the Woodstock generation. When you go right up and down uh, Republicans and Democrats, uh, these are folks who can impact, and there are single issue voters out there. This is something that can move somebody's opinion of a candidate. And I think that's what is gonna be incumbent upon the folks who are active in, in this movement, uh, personally and at a corporate level, to get involved with the campaigns. And it's a perfect opportunity for either or both campaigns to, to, pivot, to pivot forward. And the one who does it first, David, I think is gonna be the one who uh, gets the advantage of this. Yeah, well, why don't we wrap it up with, that last thought from David, and I'll probably move on to that too. Anyway, I think Joe is waiting. So, the, the, David, do you, do you see that? Do you see this becoming a, an issue that moves the needle to different voting laws? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I think uh, Eric alluded to it already, but we're talking about progressives. Uh, we're talking about single-issue cannabis voters. Uh, we're talking about minority voters. All three of those categories are really important um, to the vice president and to the president. They're watching each very closely. Um, and I think that uh, the electability argument that our industry is going to make to both campaigns uh, is really gonna set up that jump ball that uh, Patrick alluded to earlier. So you're gonna have two almost octogenarians trying to swat the, the cannabis ball and whoever ends up with it, I think is gonna have a massive advantage in this election. You know, it's going to be just—it's fantastic. I mean, we, we the industry has been growing for a while, country by country, state by state. Uh, you know, it's going to be really interesting. I know we have to deal with the pandemic. I know we have to deal, arguably more importantly, with the social—you uh, know—justice issues, reform issues. But you know, cannabis could be a large part of that. But I have to believe that as we go through the remainder of this year, we get through the election, we hear from the UN. On, on whether they reschedule or not, as we continue to see legalization across the globe, there's, there's a lot of tailwinds behind the cannabis movement. And it's, it's every step of the way, it, it just makes it bigger, bigger, and bigger. It's, there's a recreational component, there's a medical component. There's a, we're not even getting into the, you know, the whole industrial aspects of it and how that could you know, help deal with issues like global warming, what have you. So, it's going to be really fascinating to see how this industry grows, you know, the job growth it brings, hopefully some of the reform it brings, and, and uh, you know, just, just where we'll be a few years from now. I'm pretty excited to see. Um, Joe, maybe we should turn over to you to see if there's any Q&A that, that we can help out with. Yeah, Jason, thanks a lot. This is John Darcy here, the Managing Director of SALT, jumping in to handle the audience Q&A, which we've, we've got a lot of engagement from the audience. We'll thank all the panelists for, for such an engaging discussion. So the first question is, which specific states do you think are next to legalize 
or decriminalize uh, cannabis? And what do you think the timeline is for that? Patrick, you want to take a crack on that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, uh, you know, two states that we've been following extremely closely um, are Pennsylvania and New York State. And, you know, what I think we've seen across the country as states consider adult use uh, programs is, you know, there's some regional competition that takes place. Uh, and if one state sees a bordering state making a move, it is of the utmost importance that they act. I can speak, uh, you know, to the situation in the Midwest. There was, you know, tremendous uh, pressure on, on the state of Illinois to act uh, through the legislative process because we knew it was on the ballot in Michigan. And we knew that there was a, a strong likelihood that, that uh, it was gonna pass in Michigan. And you wanna make sure that, uh, you know, you are kind of the regional leader. We've seen what that's done for the cannabis industry in a state like Massachusetts what it's done in California. Um, and so I would look to, to Pennsylvania and New York. I think Pennsylvania uh, is, you know, David and Eric and, and uh, all of our partners talk about this all the time, uh, that it is just really ripe for, for something to happen there. And then New York has gotten so close so many times that uh, I think that, that the combination of COVID and the economic, uh, you know, issues that states and, and localities are gonna be facing and the fact that you may have another regional player moving uh, is going to create, uh, you know, the, the strong likelihood that, that New York State will will do something. And then I also think, uh, to answer the the question just another way, I think states that have not had anything before are going to be looking at at entering and doing a medical program. And I would I would look to a state like North Carolina uh, and others to to potentially look at addressing something like that as well, which is all positive movement uh, for us and for our industry. As a North Carolina native, that's good to hear. Um, yeah, how do you think the black market, gray market issue in a place like California, for example, will be solved with federal legalization? Yeah, I'll talk to that a little bit to start being up here in Canada. And, you know, we have federal legalization. And, the, you know, the, the problem, it's not a cure-all necessarily. It has to be done in a thoughtful way. And, you know, David, you can talk a lot more about this, obviously being a canopy, you've seen, seen what's happened up here. But I mean, it has, to, it has to, the pricing has to be right. You have to get broad-based distribution. You can't have the red tape, you can't have the hurdles. Here in Ontario, Ontario, largest province in Canada, you know, we have, uh, people have been talking generally in the market that we haven't seen the sales that we probably would. Well, 15 million people, and there's only 22 or 23 dispensaries available in the first year of legalization. I and mean, that's ridiculous. There was no access to it. Uh, you were able to go on the Ontario Cannabis Store and order online. And that happened, legalization happened in the middle of a federal postal strike. So you couldn't you know, order it, you wouldn't get it. Uh, so, you know, the, the laws have to be there, but the whole supply chain has to build out around it. And, you know, everyone has to really get behind it to make sure that there is you know, a, a proper and effective role. David, do you want to touch on that a little bit? I actually think that you hit all the high points. I mean, I was just jotting this down. It's, it's transitioning the uh, illegal market into the legal market. It's setting the tax rate correctly, uh, both short and long-term, and it's about the outlets. We hear about the outlets all the time. Uh, it's a huge problem. Um, and I'd also just want to add into the question previously about the timing on some of these states. Uh, 2021 could be a massive year for 
the state-by-state uh, -state legalization effort. And let's also not forget that if a state that is a red state legalizes in any way, shape, or form, um, that state then has direct influence on their senators and makes it even more difficult for them to oppose the efforts on Capitol Hill. So that's been the playbook all along. And I think an important point to add as we talk about the timing on states. Great. Uh, just to dive in more into presidential politics and the effect of the election potentially on marijuana legislation, cannabis uh, legislation and regulation. We have a couple questions on that that I'll, I'll group into. What do you think, you touched on you know, the likelihood if Vice President Biden wins, the increasing likelihood that we might see reform early in his presidency, but what do you think would happen in the event that a you know, Republican administration wins, that would be a second term with Donald Trump, and, and if Republicans remain in power, do you think there's a movement within the Republican Party even uh, to start legalizing and decriminalizing cannabis? Uh, what do you think would happen in that scenario? Yeah. Okay. I, used have, I used to have a joke that libertarians were just Republicans who smoke pot. Um, I think that's changed and morphed a little bit. Um, I think it's inevitable either way. However, I think it's going to happen more quickly if, if Vice President Biden becomes president. Um, my worry about a second Trump administration on this issue is that with, you know, uh, uh, you look at his choices for attorney, attorneys general, first um, Jeff Sessions, uh, who undid the Cole memo, and then Bill Barr, who has been vehemently opposed to, um, to legalization. If he were to continue as attorney general, I just think with those folks whispering in the president's ear and no then electoral upside to, to, to do anything uh, about it, it might take a little more time. Yeah, I agree uh, completely with, with what Eric said. And, and I would add, I do not think it will slow the progress we see at the state level. And in fact, I think it could speed it up. I think if, if President Trump's reelected and his administration decides they just don't want to do anything federally on cannabis legalization, I think you'll see states continue to act uh, and probably speed up their action uh, because the public's there. And we've all talked about it for, for a variety of reasons, um, you know, but the most important reason, and I think you see this with all social and economic change over the course of time, people who experience it in their day-to-day -day lives uh, understand the benefits. And there's been a real education for a lot of people on what cannabis is and what it can provide uh, to communities. So speaking, you, you touched uh, briefly earlier on the vice presidential pick and what effect that could have on cannabis regulation. And you mentioned some of the African-American uh, women who are under consideration for that VP slot. Is there one candidate in particular that has a record and is on the record regarding cannabis uh, regulation and legislation that you think would be the most favorable for early, early action in a Biden administration? I think that uh, Kamala, Senator Kamala Harris is still top of my list uh, in terms of the, the president's VP shortlist. Um, she has a, a very strong position on legalization. Um, she was a author of the Moore Act Companion um, so she's, she's already there. Uh, she understands um, the criminal justice, or sorry, the social justice pieces that I referenced earlier. Um, and I really think that she could lead on this issue uh, if the president chooses not to. And again, we're going to make the electability case to uh, former Vice President Biden's campaign. Uh, I don't know whether they will side with it or not, but I do think it's something that um, Senator Harris could lead on if she was the pick. But Everybody, we've done an analysis of everybody that's on that short list, and they almost all 
without exception, um, have positions that they've already taken that are pro-legalization. Anybody want to add to that? No, I think David uh, hit it right on the head. And I would just say, if all of the candidates on the shortlist uh, support legalization, which they do, the question then becomes about who is going to want to lead on the issue and who is going to take that position that will in some ways run a little bit contrary uh, to the position that Vice President Biden has laid out and who is going to be willing to build political support within the White House, in Congress, and using the personal relationship that they're going to have with the president to move uh, him on that issue. That's really what I'm looking for. And I think David uh, said it just right with Senator Harris. She's already shown, uh, you know, in her presidential campaign that she's willing uh, to come out and, and show separation between her and the vice president on an issue that, that uh, was important to her. And I think she's shown uh, just this week in this debate on criminal justice reform uh, that she's willing to, to make a strong assertive case on something that, that she's passionate and believes in. I'm sure all the women on the shortlist would, um, but I think, uh, you know, we've had a chance to all of us work with her uh, in her time in the Senate and in California, and uh, I think she'd be a tremendous advocate. But we would really view this for any of the women who are under consideration if they're chosen as a huge, huge opportunity to lead on an issue. Uh, and, you know, when you're vice president, that job, it doesn't have a huge job description. Uh, the people who really become successful uh, as vice president, uh, like Vice President Biden was, take on certain issues and lead on them. And this would be, I think, a really important one for, for whichever woman is chosen to do Imagine so. two scenarios, a conversation about legalization with Vice President Kamala Harris or a conversation about legalization with Vice President Mike Pence and how <laughs> divergent those might be. And you can never underestimate the, the power of the cabinet. You know, people like Eric Garcetti, people like, you know, all the people who ran for president, a number of those are going to be in the Biden administration as cabinet secretaries. So they're going to have a role to play and a voice on this. And there's going to be a chorus of, of, of yes voices for legalization. Great point. So going back to Attorney General Barr, we have a question about whether you think his alleged targeting of cannabis companies for antitrust review has affected M&A in the industry. You know, there was a whistleblower that said today that 10 deals were targeted just because Barr doesn't like cannabis and doesn't like the industry. And has that put a damper on deals and deal making at a time when uh, the, the person who's asking the question believes that consolidation in the industry is needed? And, and what effect has that had on stock prices in the space? Yeah, I mean, you, you're always going to have an issue with stock prices in the space and, and until we get a full proper federal regime and even the global regime and just 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 even globally the u.s is a, a catalyst just think of the international tax treaties drug treaties every aspect of how we do global commerce until we get the, the world's largest economy on board it's going to be really hard to scale this entire industry and right now it's, it's it's really fragmented and broken up i mean it's it's it, it, it's even if with everything being perfect, it's going to take time. We build up supply chains, obviously, to go from narrative to pure execution. There's no question about that. But when you have the world's largest economy sitting there, really taking a fragmented approach to it, not knowing what's right, we can we can look at hemp, CBD derived hemp, technically federally legal, but we don't even have FDA guidance on how we can sell it. Right? You look at what's happening in Kentucky right now. Obviously, that, and they clearly want the legalization of hemp to support their economy. And they have businesses going bankrupt 
all the time because we can't get a coherent framework to allow anyone to succeed. So, you know, I, I just feel that we're going to continue to see a lot of volatility in the market until we start to see movement on a global scale, particularly in the U.S., but also on a global scale. I'm hoping that, you know, the U.N. moves forward, votes to reschedule, post-election, we start to see state by state, obviously, a lot of states coming on, online, but most importantly, federal legalization, again, it's going to fill a lot of holes. I think we've heard, heard that consistently, a bunch of the holes that can fill. Once that starts to happen, I think we'll, we'll see this evolve as a normal, you know, profitable industry. Until then, it's, it's, it's going to be lumpy. It's going to be volatile. So we have two more questions and then we'll wrap up. Thanks for all the audience engagement to all the viewers. Uh, do you think a single buyer, one buyer system is the way to go to make sure that retailers can't compete with illicit dealers? I don't know. Um, I'd, have to, I'd have to ponder that question. Um, that's actually not something that we've been uh, really thinking about in terms of the federal regulatory structure that I referenced earlier, um, but certainly something that I, you know, happily take back to the drawing board with my under other industry partners and, and those on the Hill. Um, Patrick, Eric, any thoughts from the two of you? I think that sort of uh, government mandated market control is never a good idea. I think the free market with budget for uh, enforcement and with a logical tax scheme, which lowers the, the price of, 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 of legitimate um, uh, cannabis to the point or lower than, than, than that in the black and gray market, that's how you get there. You know, if, that, if the goal is, right, driving down or driving out black market competition, I think you could do that through other measures without these um, overarching market, market controls. I start to worry when you have sort of a, a single entity controlling any distribution. All right, so last question is, how long do you think it will be and what do you think the impetus will be for pension fund trustees and institutional investors in general to regard investment in the cannabis industry as a normal course of business? You know, my opinion on it, and I'll pass it on to the rest. You know, looking at, you know, when we're out speaking with originally raising capital several years ago when we started in this space, all the big pension funds, insurance companies, larger asset managers, uh, you know, your typical go-to institution for raising capital just didn't want to get involved in a space because they didn't, they didn't, yes, there was a fear of the illegality. I think they all feel it's going to move beyond that. But what they were, the catalysts are really waiting for is that proper, um, you know, regul regulatory framework so that they could actually properly value the companies they're investing in, know that they could execute. I mean, right now, it's really hard to put together a business plan when you don't know how to roll out, when you don't know what the tax consequences are gonna be, when you have you know, uh, employee safety issues, what have you. So it, it, it's when you can't get, for example, COVID relief uh, that we've seen in certain examples. So I think until we see a proper framework, or at least, um, a, a lot of positive movement towards that where we know what's going to happen. I think that's when you're going to start seeing large institutional investment come in where they can properly evaluate the business uh, plan, look at the competitive landscape and understand how it's all going to fit together. Until then, that's you know, a little bit too ad hoc to make a proper investment analysis, I think, for them. Thank you all. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, David, for joining us today. This is a, a fascinating discussion on 
on an industry that's very fast growing and I, I think only has the potential to accelerate further once we get a little bit more clarity, uh, maybe starting in November about regulation in the space. Uh, this episode is going to be posted on demand uh, afterwards. So if you if you tuned in live and you want to go back and listen to some of the clips, we'll post it on the SALT YouTube channel and pass it around to your friends who might be interested in the space because I think increasing awareness about what's going on in the cannabis space is very important uh, for a variety of reasons, including social reasons. You know, we're seeing a lot of uh, obviously activism today and I think addressing some of these issues related to cannabis regulation will help solve some of those issues, especially as it relates to criminal justice reform.